This is City AM Unregulated. I'm Emma Hazlitt. On this week's show, is virtual reality coming to an office near you? When we had some of our um, team members based in the US, we used to have virtual meetings inside this virtual space on Engage, and we'd have our PowerPoints um, pulled up on a virtual screen. CEO of Immersive Education, David Whelan. Huge amount of money. I would say at least 40% of all funds are going into the pornography industry in VR in that type of research. Director of Viative, Colin Bethel. Probably only 10 or 11 years ago, we got the first smartphone. So I'm pretty sure that in the virtual reality world, the world will change. Hello and welcome to City AM Unregulated. This week, we're escaping the office by going to a virtual office somewhere else. We're discussing how virtual reality systems are helping people to learn and grow, but also how it's going to change the office of the future. Right, so let's bust some of the jargon to begin with. What's the difference between VR, AR and AI? AI is um, artificial intelligence, which is machine learning. So, um, do you know, if you're going through a menu um, system on a a phone um, telecommunications um, server, that the AI knows where to redirect your call. And okay. that's kind of a really basic example, whereas virtual reality VR is where you put on um, a virtual reality headset. And when you're looking into these, they're like ski goggles and um, you see a completely digital world. So everything is replaced. So everything you see is replaced. Everything you hear is replaced with a virtual world. And then you have augmented reality, which is AR. And mm-hmm. that's where you put on, they're like a pair of glasses. You can still see the real world, but overlaid on top of the real world, you might see these, they're like holograms where you might see virtual objects placed on your real table and they're kind of like hallucinations. So that's the main (laughs) difference between AR and VR. So VR is where you replace everything and then AR is where, where you can still see the real world, but we put virtual objects into that real world. It all sounds a bit Black Mirror. It is very um, 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 Black Mirror and it is kind of strange and it's it's very hard to convey what AR and VR is until you really put on a headset and try it out. So kind of what I um, say to people normally is imagine the world 100 years ago where everybody had radio and I came on the radio and I was trying to explain to people what TV is like. People in their own minds have an idea that, oh, is it like a flip book and a load of pictures? But until they actually saw a real TV in the real world, they didn't fully understand. And virtual reality and augmented reality is the very same. Until you really put on a headset, it's very hard to describe. It's not like watching a 3D movie. It's like seeing real objects in front of you, even though they're virtual. You guys both deal in virtual reality. Um, Are people always going to have to have a big black box strapped to their face. I find it fairly surprising that that is the sort of evolution that's come, you know, and it's survived so long. But it does seem that the efforts of consumers not rejecting it and the efforts of hardware developers continuing to refine it, like making them lighter and more comfortable and so forth, bigger so they get glasses in, means that perhaps we're going to have them for some time, yes. In the next, say, 10 to 15 years, you won't even need um, glasses on your face. So there is a company called Magic Leap who got a a huge amount of funding um, from Google um, a couple of years ago. And what they did was, even though it is still a pair of glasses, they redirect light into the eyes. So it's not like you're looking at a display screen, but you're actually seeing light um, refocused directly into your eyes. So I can definitely see a future where there will be a box 
in the corner of your room like a TV that will redirect light directly into your eyes. You know, I can't help but think the downfall of the Google Glass was the fact that it made people look really silly. Um, I think that may be part of it, but also as well, it wasn't very productive as a tool. So you could do stuff a lot quicker on your phone than you could do on Google Glass. So there wasn't a huge benefit to Google Glass really as, as a productivity tool. Whereas virtual reality, it's a full simulation where you're inside and there is a lot of benefits to using virtual reality. Like there's a lot of use cases for virtual reality, whereas just a, a heads up display with not very many features. You could do everything on a Google Glass that you could do on a mobile phone. Yeah, I think perhaps also coming back to the earlier point that the, the box on your head is has um, sort of retained itself um, because there isn't yet an alternative mm -hmm. um, and it does deliver a benefit. So the only way you can have that benefit is by sticking the box on your head for the time <laughs> being. Yeah. We did try it out just before we, uh, we before the show and it was very, very cool, I have to admit. Our listeners are an entrepreneurial lot, and I know they're going to want to know where are the opportunities in virtual reality? Okay, so the field is, is really wide open at the moment. Um, so the early adopters who are buying this technology right now are predominantly gamers. So you see a lot of focus on game-related and um, entertainment-related products on Steam and Oculus. Oculus would be one of the platforms. Steam are like a big gaming platform, and Oculus who were bought by Facebook um, two years ago, they have their own gaming platform. So the majority of content at the moment is games. Um, with my own company, um, we're definitely looking at the education space because like our company tagline is learn through experience and people learn better by doing. Um, and what we can do in virtual reality is simulate any real life situation or any situation that people can't do far real. So one of the examples is we have an Apollo 11 um, simulation experience where you become Neil Armstrong and you learn all about the mission. And we teach people the history of the Apollo program through this simulation. And when they feel they've been part of the mission, they retain a lot more. So education is one field, but there's huge, huge, huge um, um, opportunities in also um, shopping, for example, in virtual worlds where instead of you going to, um, say, a clothing shop, um, you could do it virtually in a virtual world with your virtual avatar body and fit on clothes and see how they look. So that kind of stuff is coming in the future. Mm. Does, does this make my avatar look fat? Um, <laughs> <laughs> and, and Colin, you're, um, I mean, earlier, just before the show, I was putting together the bits of a heart. A human body is made up of different organs and systems. One of these vital organs is the heart which continuously pumps blood throughout the body. Is, is education the next big thing for virtual reality? or Well, education in virtual reality and actually in augmented reality mm -hmm. is the space that we've moved into. So obviously I believe there is a big opportunity, not just in you know selling something, but there's a huge benefit to education of using that technology if it can be harnessed properly. Um, but there are others. Uh, and I think there's a, a huge, I mean, a huge amount of industries that would benefit from some use of it because generally, I mean, businesses train uh, and schools teach. We just call it something different, but in many ways it's achieved, they're, they're very parallel. So wherever there's a training need, uh, it's worth considering this technology in any business. So that's such a wide scope. 
Some of the more obvious ones, though, are, are things like, you know, we all know what a flight simulator is, and we've been, that's been in use for a long time. And that's a really big box that you can't strap onto your head, so you're living in the box. And obviously the budget is way out for most people, but is okay for that industry. And I think there's several other industries where the expenditure of a lot of money on high-end equipment for VR, it, once the case is proved, is actually going to save them far more money than they're spending. And that's okay. the reason they do it. You don't have to risk real airplanes and real people. A big kind of pull on our company at the moment is we're getting a lot of medical training institutes um, looking to use virtual reality because in many instances, um, as an example, with the, with the cost of training uh, medical students, is they have a machine that could cost maybe a quarter of a million or half a million dollars that each student has to have time on this machine to learn how to do certain operations like keyhole operations. Whereas in virtual reality, we can simulate this machine and instead of having a half million dollar piece of equipment, each one of the students can have a thousand dollar VR headset and everything is simulated. And it can also really heighten the emotion um, inside virtual reality. So when there's a virtual patient in front of you and you're trying to save that patient and the patient is reacting to you on the fly, um, you really feel empathy for that patient because you have a life life and death situation in your hands and that patient could die in front of you. And even though you know it's a simulation, for some reason in your subconscious, because everything looks so real, you really do feel um, a certain urgency that you can only do in simulated training, you know, that you can't really achieve through, say, traditional methods of just reading text or looking at videos or even having actors in sometimes. So way more stress earlier on in your career. <laughs> yes, yes. <laughs> Oh, hey, Emma here. You clearly love podcasts, which is great. That also means you understand the power it has to reach an engaged audience like you. If you want to support the Unregulated podcast as the home of professional development, world-class business leaders, and stand with us celebrating entrepreneurship, get in touch. Email advertising at audioboom.com to find out how this virtual idea can become a reality. See what I did there? Excellent. Back to VR in the office. Guys, fast forward 10 years. Will this be part of our everyday office lives? Or a derivative of it. I think actually it's, it's I think, probably only 10 or 11 years ago we got the first smartphone and the world has changed because of those items. Mm -hmm. So I'm pretty sure that in the virtual reality world, the world will change quite significantly. The point is, it's just like anything else in your life, really, to be a part of it um, with all the machines and computers and anything in, that's technological. You keep continually upgrading incrementally, whether you're a consumer or in industry, making the stuff. And that is one of the secrets to getting to that 10-year point. But we've got, to, we've got to do the way stations along the way. And I think all of this talk about, like you mentioned about the big black box strapped to your head, I think that's a really good question. And I think it will evolve, but I can't predict what it will evolve into. We're actually seeing um, some changes here already um, in our office and in game development in general. We've built a platform called the Engage platform. And um, at its core, it's a university education platform. But we have a meeting room inside the virtual space and when we had some of our um, team members based in the US, we used to have virtual meetings inside this virtual space on Engage and we'd have our PowerPoints um, pulled up on a virtual screen and we'd have a whiteboard session where we'd stand up and we'd have it naturally. That's stuff that um, you could do that kind of stuff on Skype 
but it's not very intuitive. Whereas when we were inside the meeting room, we could sit, easily sit there for two or three hours and really feel part of a real conversation because the avatars who are in that virtual room are projected in there. They feel like they're only they're real people and they're only two or three feet away from you, even though they don't look 100% realistic. It's from their natural movements and through their non-verbal communications that you can capture inside virtual reality. It really feel, felt like that person is there. So I definitely see um, offices using um, VR for meetings would be a great first user use case for it. We watched a video just before we came in um, and it was it was a mess of education. It was uh, um, somebody giving a presentation and the guy was waving his arms around and some of the um, avatars, one of the avatars just was kind of looking around in wonder at the room. How How does it tell how people are moving like that? So inside the headsets, inside hardware, they have... And I should add that we'll put the video on the website as well. Yeah, cool. So that that's actually, that was our guys in the office um, messing around. So two of the guys were in the US and two of the guys were in um, Ireland. And the way the avatar is tracked is in the hardware, there's these motion tracking sensors inside the hardware. So as you move in real space, these sensors... Uh, detect every movement that you do, even some millimeter movements, and that's transferred onto the avatars. So when you're inside, the avatars move in a very natural way. Again, because they don't look realistic, but the fact that they're moving in a natural way, you can really tell that that's a person really in that space. How far are we from being able to um, have, you know, a virtual touch as well? So if I were to reach out to you, I have seen um, a lot of work with the tactical. Uh, tactile feedback for virtual reality. Now, the US military um, have done some studies many years ago where they'd use electrodes on the brain. And what it would do is it would stimulate senses in the brain to simulate touch when they're inside a virtual space. But obviously, that's not something that we can do for consumers. <laughs> you could try. <laughs> oh, yeah. Crazy one of those big, big habits. But one of the leading kind of uh, industries that are looking at tactile feedback, would you believe, would be um, uh, the pornography industry, where um, I've seen some devices. You can easily look them up. I, I won't mention them here. but um, <laughs> By all means, mention them. We are, we're an open podcast. We like to chat. <laughs> <laughs> I think they call it um, tele teledildonics is what the name of the, the this field is in, in the pornography industry. Wow. So, it's an interesting field, but um, I think like that particular industry does drive technology quite a lot. So it drove the early days of the internet. Pornography drove drove the early days of the internet. Also with video and Betamax, um, video won out because of um, pornography and how easy it was to re-record on video, even though Betamax was preferably the better um, system. So definitely there's a huge amount of money. I would say at least 40% of the funds or maybe even half of all funds are going into the pornography industry okay. in VR in that type of research. Oh my God, that's a whole nother show. <laughs> yeah. I mean, you yeah. know, I, I did read a piece about this actually, something called Sex Ed VR, which, you know, it was basically a porn company, <laughs> but, yeah. uh, but, you know, builds itself as sex education. Is, is that something that could become widespread in schools? Well, actually, definitely. Um, I mean, we're currently um, making the curriculum for science and maths for secondary so human reproduction is in there uh so we can call that sexual education um and certainly uh this is one of the areas where business may grow to business being really things that serve the education industry in this case is that if any particular modules and i think this is very likely any particular modules take off as being particularly suited to 
VR as a way of you know getting getting those things understood, then I think we would probably see intensification of the use of that technology in that place. And that and I think absolutely that um, sexual health, anything really to do with the human body. Uh, because it's three-dimensional and it's very difficult to see what's going on inside. Uh, but being able to sort of interact with what's going on inside, whether it's microscopic or macroscopic, doesn't matter. Any of those areas are very likely uh, to have an affinity for this technology. And you can see, I mean, we're talking about human bodies, whether it's pornography or athletics, it's a human body. Mm -hmm. So it's the same thing, actually. It's the same principle. I mean, you guys, to, to skip subject slightly, you guys work with kids a lot. Do, do they find it quite intuitive or do, do they need a bit of training still? Yeah, so um, I actually have a, a good story about this. So a couple of years ago, um, maybe maybe three years ago now, um, it's that long, we had a prototype of our Apollo 11 experience and we decided to go and film um, reactions for kids in a school in a place called New Ross in Ireland because that's where JFK's family originally came from. Cool. So we went down to the school and we brought along um, five um, headsets and we showed all the kids the Apollo 11 experience and they all loved it. They were blown away by it. But at the very end um, of the demo, the teacher came up to us and said to us, look, there's this one other person that we'd like to put in the experience if you have time. And we said, yeah, sure, no problem. And they brought in this adult. And um, this guy, he was about 35, 40 years old, and we put him in the experience. And he was very quiet when he was inside. He didn't say very much. And then he left very quietly, and we didn't think anything of it. And about 20 minutes later, the same educator, or the educator, the teacher came up into where we were packing up with tears in his eyes and we asked like what was wrong and he said that guy the last guy you demoed to he's got um severe autism and he's been working here for 15 years and i've never heard him say more than two words in the 15 years that i've been working here and yet now he's sitting down in at the canteen and he hasn't stopped talking for at least 20 minutes about the experience he just had So it really opened up, um, really opened up that person with autism to kind of convey emotion and talk to people about his experience. So it had a really strange effect. I think people feel, even though it's a simulated space and it feels real, I think people feel safer because even though, um, like subconsciously, they know it's not real, it feels real to them and it really opens up people. Very recently, the UK government has launched a lot of help for the UK film industry. Are they doing the same thing for virtual reality? Are they seeing the potential? They're quite good with technology normally. I haven't actually seen very many governments at all. I think there is a big movement in China in kind of the education space for virtual reality, but that's where we're only starting to see the seeds of that um, starting to grow. Yeah. So I think within the next 12 months or so, we'll hear some big announcements, but it's very, very early stages. I am aware of, and let's place it, I'm in the market looking for mm -hmm. places that are looking for this sort of technology and the Middle East and the Far East uh, is definitely looking for it, uh, as is South Asia. And, and if governments or if the UK government specifically could do one thing to entice you guys and encourage you, what would it be? Well, I think, I mean, having been at the BEP conference last week, which was for technology and education for the UK, uh, the overwhelming simple thing is that the money needs to be available because even though there are cost-effective solutions, this goes for anything in education really, but now we're talking about this, the VR. I mean, there is a certain amount of expenditure that's absolutely necessary to participate and the 
many people came by the stand and suggested that they they didn't have that, uh, mostly in public area schools. But the independent schools did have funding. Mm-hmm. Obviously, that's coming from private means. And incidentally, I mean, Scandinavia was very strong. I noticed a lot of visitors from Scandinavia and Benelux countries that obviously do have some budget. So it's not huge money, actually. Um, you know, it's just like years ago, they had to buy computers, which they'd never bought before. It's about making a budget that can be used for new technology. Yeah, I was just going to say we're at a very similar stage. This The rollout of this new generation of our virtual reality is very similar to um, the rollout of personal PCs back in the mid, mid to late um, 80s. And I do remember the British government um, had the BBC computer that they released into schools and they had that whole initiative. So I think they would have to do a similar um, initiative for virtual reality to be adopted in um, schools. But I think third level institutes and especially medical training institutes will probably be the early adopters of this technology because medical training institutes have big budgets anyway. And they see this as a cost saving measure. Instead of buying that huge piece of equipment that costs half a million dollars, they can kit out like a whole um, class with 30 VR headsets for a fraction of the price. How are we going to stop the world becoming a planet full of the fat people from Wally? in the next 20 years? Industry, including myself, needs to work with the teaching fraternity uh, and teachers. I mean, I was a teacher myself and many of my colleagues were. Uh, And conducting education is, I mean, part of education is social. And obviously we all learn a lot in our formative years from education. That's not changing. It never will change. Well, I don't believe it will with humans. They don't change that quickly. So as we adopt technology... Uh, educationalists and teachers, and I'm sure that they are all sworn to doing this, simply need to use the technology when it's a good idea, but also keep with the social education in every other respect. But uh, I don't, I mean, I would hope you're not going to see a decline in physical education because we're all be sitting in labs with boxes on our heads. I mean, that's not what I intend and I don't think that's what any teacher would like. I do feel that in the future there will be people addicted to their virtual life just as they are people who are addicted to TV and some video games. Um, but VR is just a tool. It's like VR is not inherently evil or is inherently good. It's just a really, really useful tool. So it depends on who is um, creating the software, what kind of software are they creating, what use use cases are they using for virtual reality. But they will obviously be people that are hopelessly addicted to their virtual world. The world won't collapse in kind of a, a social upheaval just because of the arrival of virtual reality. It's just the next evolution in, in um, digital graphics, digital displays, you know, it's just another way of interacting with a digital world. To be fair, at the moment, I do feel like retreating into a digital world a little bit. Um, Colin Bethel and David Whelan, thank you very much. Wally? With thanks to Colin Bethel and David Whelan, this has been City AM's Unregulated, which you can subscribe to on iTunes, Spotify or RSS, wherever you listen to podcasts. And now for this week's Twitter conversation. Tweet me at Emma Hazlitt, that's with a double T, and let me know what professional skill you think is well suited to a VR lesson. And after our sex ed discussions, try and keep it clean. See you next week. 
Unregulated by City AM is an Audio Boom production produced by Jamie Wareham and presented by City AM digital editor Emma Hazlitt. <laughs>